Welcome to Somewhere and Elsewhere, a Coastal Carolina Arts Podcast by Short Sides. I'm Kevin Lee Y. Green. Coming up next, a Somewhere and Elsewhere special where we uncover stories from artists across the coastal region. Parker's Island is a small community off the coast of North Carolina. About a thousand people call it home year-round. That number always increases during the summer as people come to enjoy the sand and the water, but there's also a surge of visitors in early December for a very different reason, the Harker's Island Decoy Festival. Every year, for two days, people from all over the country come together to partake in all things involving fake ducks and other waterfowl. I really didn't think there was many people that liked decoys at the world until we got started. That's Wayne Davis. You can hear in his accent that he comes from a long line of coastal North Carolinians. And in 1987, he and six other local carvers founded the Core Sound Decoy Carvers Guild, the group who hosts the decoy festival. Since then, that small band of carvers has grown to include members from around the world, and their festival is now a major economic driver for their community. Last year, they sold $55,000 worth t-shirts. This is a lot of people. Hundreds of visitors pack the gym, the cafeteria, and every classroom of Harker's Island Elementary School to display their decoys, to carve decoys, to compete in decoy competitions, and of course, to buy some decoys. I'm not bragging when I say this, but I, don't, I think people are crazy for doing it. But uh, I haven't been had a booth in the show in uh, about 20 years. And the last show I was in, I had made 540 little ducks, and I sold them all in 45 minutes. If, like me, you thought 540 ducks was prolific, you have no idea who you're dealing with when you talk to Wayne Davis. By December, I made my number 10,000 duck. You've been keeping track? You've been counting all of them? I mean, I made the first one when I was 15, and don't ask me why I did it. I used to, when I was carving, I'd sit there and I'd write it down on a piece of paper or anything I could throw it in the corner. And then one day, a few years back, I said, I'm going to write all that down and got it all straightened out. And since then, I've been writing it down. I reckon I'm the only one, only one a big enough fool to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when was that you passed your 10,000th last year? Just past December. Oh, my gosh. Are you still keeping track, or did you stop at 10,000? Oh, no, I'm still keeping track. I got to get out of the 20,000. No, no I'm, not, I'm still making them. I'm sitting here right now. Look, I'm like working on 100 at one time. Oh, my gosh. Wow. 10,000 career ducks selling 450 miniatures at a rate of 10 decoys per minute. There's obviously something going on here with these wooden ducks, but I'm not sure what. Even Wayne says he doesn't quite understand why everyone loves him so much. Yet, people spend hundreds, even thousands of dollars on a good decoy. To begin to figure out what drives this love, it helps to know a little history. And you can't bring up the history of core sound decoys without bringing up one name. Mitchell Fulcher. I just call him my great uncle. I'm, I'm sure it's probably more than one great. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, everybody I grew up around in my family always referred to him as Uncle Mitchell. That's Casey Arthur. He's another member of the Carver's Guild, and he grew up in Stacy, North Carolina, the same town his Uncle Mitchell grew up in over a century ago. He had a style that was 
really infectious. Um, and it kind of went like a virus all the way across my hometown. And everybody that carved on Stacy used his patterns. A lot of people even tried to paint like him. He was a, just a phenomenal craftsman and, and painter. You could tell what he liked and what he didn't like. And uh, what he liked, he stuck to pretty hardcore. But that was kind of the early beginnings of, uh, of a true core sound, a recognizable core sound style. The core sound style. According to the core sound decoy contest rulebook, the style is more defined by what it isn't than what it is. Rule number one, no eyes, no eye sockets or eye channels. Rule number two, no fragile or detailed bills, no nostrils. Rule number three, no inserts or raised feathers, no feather groups, and no painted feathers. Rule number four, no burning, no stoning, no texturing. And rule number five, no blending of paints, no antiquing paint, and no airbrushing. Painting shall only be done in the traditional method of block painting. The result? Core soundbirds, with their lack of fine detail and their bold, solid coloring patterns, look closer to minimalist, art deco-style sculptures than they do living birds. If you were trying to make a short dictionary version of a, a definition of the core sound style, it would be it would be simple but elegant. That's kind of what you're going for when it when it comes to the core sound style. If you find yourself breaking out um, a wood burner or a series of gouges to, to cut in a, a ton of relief cuts, or if you find yourself, you know, looking for a bunch of random tools and stuff like that, you'd be probably veering away from the core sound style. Simple but elegant. It's a good description for the artistic style itself, but the history behind core sound style, it's neither of those. The oldest discovered decoys date back to more than 2,000 years ago. They were made by Native Americans. Several American Indian groups are known to have used decoys to aid their hunts, and when Europeans showed up in the New World, many adopted similar techniques. Historians don't seem to be sure if they were taught how to make decoys by American Indians, or if they just thought it looked like a good idea and took it for themselves. Regardless, it wasn't until centuries later, after the Civil War had ended towards the end of the 19th century, that decoy making really turned commercial. Thanks to advances in weaponry, faster shooting and longer range shotguns could suddenly kill more ducks than ever. And at the same time, thanks to a rapidly growing railroad system, those ducks could be shipped off for profit. The American population needed more food, and there seemed to be an endless supply of waterfowl. As that market hunting industry grew, so too did hunting for sport. Killing ducks was the new thing to do. Expensive hunting clubs were established in areas where waterfowl were plentiful, areas like the North Carolina coast. So the, the clubs around home, around Stacy, and in the Corsound area, were mostly filled with prominent uh, businessmen and people who were wealthy. Um, and so these hunters would come from up north, and they had plenty of money, so they would just buy a bunch of decoys from the Holly family, and they would come down to the club that they were a member of, and they would put out these massive spreads of, of wooden decoys. The Holly family were a well-known family of decoy carvers located in northern Maryland. When you look at a Holly duck, you immediately recognize some core sound similarities, especially in the shape of the bodies and the painting patterns. This is weird. The Hollies were located over 300 miles away, and in 1890, the core sound was pretty isolated. But, as Casey describes, when those northern businessmen traveled south to visit the hunting clubs that were spread up along the Outer Banks, 
they purchased decoys from the Hollies and brought them along to lure ducks to the core sound. We're talking rigs of dozens to hundreds of northern decoys bobbing along in the sound. And then... When you'd have a hard storm, it would blow these decoys off and they would wash up on the shore side and you walk around the shoreline as almost like a hobby and pick up decoys and they became yours. A lot of times they would end up with new heads from local carvers because the heads were mangled or they just frankly wanted to claim ownership of that decoy. And so they'd put their own head on it and say, hey, that's obviously my head. So it's my decoy, you know, and um, they oftentimes would put their own initials in there. That's what we call in the world of core sound decoys, we call those birds club ducks. If they have a head by a local carver, but the body is from usually like a Maryland carver um, and it has a local kind of uh, rig marker in there, which is basically someone's initials, then that would be a club duck. So while Mitchell Fulcher was already carving his own decoys and developing his style, he was also collecting these Holly family and other northern decoys that washed across the sound and retrofitting them. In many ways, the tenet Casey mentioned of simple elegance, it was just a result of the tools Fulcher had to work with. He was carving his birds with nothing but a draw knife. Casey says it was even rumored that Fulcher painted his decoys with a goose feather. If Uncle Mitchell had had a, uh, an airbrush, he probably would have used it. If more technology had been available and he could have afforded it, uh, he probably would have used it because he was making tools. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't making art. He was he was making a tool to to go to go get his dinner with out in the, uh, you know, the, the local grocery store that we call Core Sound. But he didn't have access to those tools, so Core Sounders made do with what they had. And that practicality, mixed with the influence of Maryland decoys brought to the Outer Banks by northern hunters and swept across the sound by ocean storms. All those pieces combined to create the core sound decoy tradition, a style that's remained rooted and unchanged for over a century. At least, that might have been the full story. Except, Casey mentioned one important wrinkle. If you look at Uncle Mitchell's work, which is undoubtedly one of the earliest pioneers of, of core sound decoys, he would put eyes in his decoys, he would put eye channels, he'd carve a nostril, he would paint somewhat of a feather speculum pattern, he would blend oil paint, um, a lot of the things you can't do in that competition. Mitchell Fulcher, patriarch of Core Sound Style, was breaking the rules from the start. And this begs the question, what constitutes tradition? Who decides what it is and what it isn't? And where does it stop and start? People have these ideas about tradition as being the sort of static thing. In our tribe, constant innovation and change is a, is a tradition, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. That's Josh Henson, the last carver you'll hear in this piece. And as you might have gathered, he's not from the core sound. Josh is a member of the Chickasaw Nation, and he lives in Oklahoma. In Chickasaw, they call me Lokush, which means gourd. I'm like a water gourd or, you know, a rattle. What I like about Josh is he has a unique perspective on tradition. He first became interested in the core sound style when he took up duck hunting several years ago, and then he found core sounds strange, bold decoys online. Since then, he's joined the Carver's Guild and learned the core sound tradition, but most of the birds he makes today would not be allowed in the Harker's Island Decoy Festival competition. Instead, he's taken core sound style and combined it with the tribal patterns inspired by ancestral Chickasaw art. 
I felt it was important to incorporate my tribal heritage into my decoy work. Otherwise, I'm just some random guy in Oklahoma making coarse sound knockoffs, which is not what I'm interested in doing. I think it's important when you're doing work to sort of cite your sources and know your influences. You know, I really try to honor my artistic forebears, whether it be my Chickasaw ancestors or, you know, my sort of coarse sound decoy ancestors. Um, you know, all of us got here, you know, through the efforts of all of these people. Josh's work exemplifies how tricky tradition can be. By bringing these two artistic schools together, he's creating art that's neither completely Chickasaw nor core sound, but his works are irrefutably based in both of those traditions. When I combine those, um, I don't know, it just seems right and appropriate. I'm acknowledging sort of both both of these traditions and their influence in my life, and then I can kind of create this hybrid thing that while not traditionally Chickasaw, is still at its base fundamentally Chickasaw. Because, you know, we're always moving and changing and adapting. And cultural history is not the only sort of legacy that these decoys embody. They are carved to fit into these large cultural traditions, but each decoy is handcrafted, and in turn, each carries its own personal history that speaks just as strongly. I've always had an interest in, like, surfaces and the sort of the visual history of a work, like how it's built. You can leave the process evident on the surface, and it just makes it more interesting. Hunting over birds that my friends have made, even if the hunting's terrible, you still have something beautiful to look at. Every sort of bump or jostle or paint rub or whatever happens just sort of contributes to sort of the overall history of, of these working birds, right? You hear a lot of carvers talk about this idea. After all, decoys are both art and tools at the same time. Where a scratch or a blemish might have destroyed the value of a painting, each scar just seems to add to the decoy's personal history. These wooden birds take on lives of their own. Alright, so maybe tradition and legacy, they're not quite as regimented as the competition guidelines suggest. They're malleable and broad ideas, and they mean different things for different people. The Carver's Guild on Harker's Island was established by seven men when it looked like the tradition of Coruscant decoys was on the brink of extinction. Now there's an annual festival, you've got a museum devoted to decoys, and a new generation of carvers who continue to build, adapt, and carry on the Coruscant history. You know, I really think people care about them just honestly, just because it's something tangible that also has, uh, you know, a past. I have a bird, uh, it's a duck that, that is uh, prominent around the core sound area in uh, hunting season. Well, I have a decoy that has a head by my Uncle Mitchell and the body is by Bob McGall, which is a Northern carver. And it has paint, a paint job and a rig marker by Henry Murphy, which is from Davis, which is the next town over from, from my hometown of Stacy three of the best carvers ever to live on this planet has something to do with that one decoy that sits in my collection. Find me a plastic decoy that has that kind of history. And I want to make sure that other people that are interested in making decoys, you know, have, uh, have, you know, a good shot to, to making a bird that they can be proud of. Even if they don't turn into decoy makers, you know, they've had that experience. So. A lot of people talk about their patina uh, or their finish. But, you know, in reality, it's, it's about the stories that they carry. 
Uh, and that that's really where I think most of the allure comes from. It really ties me back to, a, you know, a past that's a way of life that's sort of forgotten. And that comes from, you know, my hometown. And, and every time every time I hold a decoy in my hands, it reminds me of my hometown and uh, and kind of how I grew up. So it's kind of that tangible childhood memory, I guess. Without the memory, it's a little bit of oil-based paint and some wood. When we had our meetings used to, sometimes they would be slow, and I would make a poem or something. But one of the ones I wrote goes like this, and this is just, it's a little bit of the way I feel about it. A group of carvers got together to, to try to carve a real feather, the knife and hatchet to see if they could make a real bird out of a piece of wood. A real bird they couldn't make, but an old decoy they did create. And if someone looking at that old piece of wood would say, I know who carved that, it was pretty good. I met so many friends and stuff, or I made so many friends. That's that's the biggest part of it, friends and stuff I made over the years. It's been great. I wouldn't take nothing for it. I'm well satisfied with what we've done, and I think we've still got a long way to go, and we're getting old, and some of us passed away, the original seven of us, only three of us left. But we got some younger boys and stuff that are very interested in it, and got some new ideas and stuff, so I, I feel real good about the future. Thank you to the Core Sound Decoy Carvers Guild for allowing this story to be possible. A special thanks to Jerry Talton, Josh Henson, Casey Arthur, and Wayne Davis for taking time out of their days to speak with me and educate me about all things decoy related. They are all incredible storytellers. You can find a link to the guild's website in the show notes, along with links to each carver's personal website. Talking about these decoys does not do them justice, so I highly recommend you check those out and see them for yourself. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Somewhere and Elsewhere, a Coastal Carolina arts podcast from Working Narratives and Shoresides. Shoresides is a local journalism project serving the Coastal Carolinas and beyond. Know of a Coastal Carolina artist we should be covering? Contact us at info at shoresides.org. I'm Kevin Lee Y. Green. Thank you for listening.